Hey, welcome. Or welcome back, if it's welcome back. We're here for the second installment in the Intelligent Automation series of podcasts. And you know I love to start out with a story. In this case, the story is not anything about me. The story is one from the Air Force. That's the organization I want to focus on right off the bat. So in the Air Force, they have planes. And if we look at a plane like the F-22, it's interesting to look at the balance, you know, the humology balance between what the pilot does and what the plane does. The plane has intelligent automation. In fact, for the most part, the plane flies itself. It knows its own limits. The pilot collaborates with the plane. Uh, The pilot is going to direct the plane on what it would like to do, but the plane has its own intelligence built into it. It allows the pilot to do everything that the pilot might want to do, but without exceeding any limits. The plane also is making adjustments in real time for all the different dynamics around it. Could be weaponry that's firing at the plane. The plane has built-in intelligence systems that are helping the pilot to maybe make reactions that the pilot couldn't make or wouldn't know to make fast enough. All of this based on real-time dynamic data. That's why I say the planes today, you know, something like the F-22, the F-35, they're not just automated, they're intelligently automated. And the pilot partners with the plane. Another way to think about this is that the pilot is a centaur pilot. They're a highly evolved pilot that have been through top gun school, you know, had hundreds of thousands of hours of practice being a pilot and using this plane. And then the pilot is amplified by the technology that is in the plane. And you know, that's our definition of a centaur, a highly evolved human being who is being automated by highly evolved technology. So this is a great example. If you step back and you think about a complex process, a complex system where a human is integrated with that intelligent automation to be able to achieve an outcome in an ever-shifting dynamic environment. So love that story, love that example of intelligent automation from an organization. You might right now be saying, well, yeah, but I'm not the military. We don't have F-22s. We don't have anything that's that complicated. Yes, well, when you do a podcast uh, that is all about intelligent automation in organizations, part of the problem is every organization is vastly different. So I'm going to talk about some universal principles around intelligent automation. Uh, If we look at a manufacturer versus a bank, there's no sense me spending a whole podcast talking about how we automate the manufacturing line intelligently or how we automate the back office processing of a bank because then everybody who's not a manufacturer or not a bank would not be able to relate to it. So I'm going to stick with some universal principles, but I think there'll be some interesting things in this that you will be able to take away. And certainly what I want to do is create a vision for you of what intelligent automation looks like in organizations you know, what are the uh, positive outcomes of that? All right, to do that, let's step back and let's think that all organizations are like big machines, big engines. It's the way that I see an organization. And some of that probably comes from doing years and years of consulting is I have to go into an organization and very quickly understand what does it do? How does it do it? Where are the friction points? Uh, And after you do that over and over and over again, in your head, I start to see it as if it is a big engine. It's a machine made up of lots of parts, lots of systems and detailed subsystems that work together to achieve an outcome. 
whatever the outcome is for that business. And so it's helpful to see any organization that way, that it's just a big series of processes and systems, some more complicated than others, depending on the type of business. Some businesses have more processes and systems than others. Now, anyone who has built these businesses or been around a business as it has grown and matured over decades, in some cases, they've I've watched years that have gone into building these systems and processes optimizing the engine until the engine is profitable. And if you cannot optimize the engine that is an organization until it is profitable, or if it's a nonprofit successful at whatever it's trying to do, if you can't get it there, then the engine is just forever shut off and we don't need it and we don't use it. It's not able to achieve its outcome. So after years or decades of building a sophisticated machine, engine, made up of many, many different processes and systems, uh, we can now start looking at it and saying, if we were able to step back and really study every single one of these and use a humology score for them, how much H versus T? Is it an H3? Is this process a T1? You know, if we really step back and studied it, we would be able to see that for any organization, there is a percentage of the work that is done by human beings. Uh, we use the term by hand, right? Uh, that it is done by hand, not necessarily with your hands, could be done with your mind, but we say the work is done manually, okay? Manually. Then the rest of that work is done by machines. Now, more and more, that work that's done by machines can be physical tasks and or intellectual tasks, or think about it this way, robots or AI. Two different ways we can automate things all the time, physical automation or intellectual automation, um, systems that make decisions like humans would make, as opposed to systems that do a physical task like a human would do. So again, all organizations have developed over the years to be a very sophisticated set of processes and systems that have been optimized until they're profitable. And then we could look at any one of these, step back from it, and we could measure, let's just say 46% of all the work is done by machines and uh, 54% is done by human beings, you know, quote unquote, by hand. Every organization can be viewed in this way. Even organizations that are a lot alike, okay? Let's talk about that. Every organization, as it matured, as it, as it fought to profitability or to success, it created a different recipe as far as what powers all the systems and subsystems. Some organizations are more manual than others. Doesn't mean they're less successful necessarily. Uh, it just means that they develop to have more people making decisions or doing the physical tasks than the machines. And by the way, in some cases, we shouldn't judge. We shouldn't judge and say, oh, well, if, uh, the, more, the more an organization uses machines, the better it is. Really, I mean, look at a restaurant. I, I mean, if you have a restaurant where machines are cooking all the food, uh, it might not be up to the quality or have the ability to customize the meal as if the meal is cooked all by humans. So be careful not to judge. Just understand that every organization has developed into a different recipe as far as how much human versus how much technology is used. And again, even if the organization is doing the exact same thing, so you know, I used a bank as a, an example earlier, there are a lot of banks that provide the exact same service, but the way that they do it, the back office processes, the different types of software systems that they use or hardware that they use, it is a different recipe, it's a different mix, even for two banks, side by side, same size, doing the same thing. And that is because over time, different teams members and different leaders looked at the subsystems and said, oh, I have a better way of doing that. And maybe they had a better way of doing it with humans. And now that process is good enough doing it by humans, or maybe it's a fully automated process. Let's take an example of a subsystem. Budgeting. How an organization does budgeting. There are some organizations that don't do budgeting at all. Then there are some organizations 
They do all their budgeting on a spreadsheet. Then there are some organizations that have built budgeting into their ERP system, and it's all done as an automated process where it's holding people accountable in an automated way. Now, there are successful businesses that are doing all three of these different methods for budgeting, right? So just understand that, again, side by side, people have different recipes. They have different recipes because depending on who worked there and who led the organization, they automated things in a different way to a different extent. Now, what I would say is a truism is that the majority of improvements being made today, if we talk about automation, are coming from integrating technology. And of course, one of the aspects uh, that has happened with the technology is the ability to not only automate a simple task with one variable, but to automate more complex tasks with many variables, intelligent automation. All right, so if you see all that in your mind right now, then let's talk about three different levels of automation, right? I just kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, there are different levels of automation. I talked a little bit about this in the last podcast. Think in terms of mechanical automation, right? We build a machine that automates some physical process that a human does. That machine doesn't make a lot of decisions. You feed it inventory and it manufactures something that a human used to manufacture. It doesn't make a lot of decisions on its own. It has been taught a skill and it will repeat that skill. It is a mechanical automation. Uh, When I press a button, my garage door goes up. So there was some automation built that saved me from getting out of my car and having to bend over and throw my back out trying to lift up a 400-pound garage door. I don't have to do that anymore because I can just press a button now and it lifts. Now, my garage door is nothing anywhere near intelligent. It's going to open every time somebody presses any button. It doesn't know if it's me or not. Uh, It doesn't have a lot of variables where it says, well, I'm not going to open the garage door uh, in certain situations situations. No, I just, you hit the button, it opens. Okay, mechanical automation. Then there's what I'll call single choice automation. Uh, This is, uh, uh, let's just say a piece of software, right? You could call it an AI if you want to, but uh, let's just say it's it's a somewhat smart system that uh, you tell it what to do and it repeats that process, but it's kind of single choice. In other words, as long as uh, the input follows the prescription, it knows what to do. But if the input changes too dramatically, it can't make multiple choices to try to figure out what to do. So we got mechanical automation, then let's say single choice automation, then I'll say multiple choice automation. This is what intelligence comes in. Because when you have multiple choice, when there's many different variables coming at you fast, and now a piece of software or a machine can make decisions based on a dynamic, changing landscape. Okay, now we have intelligent automation. You know, again, back to our story from the Air Force and the F-22, right? There's many variables that are changing all the time in especially a battle theater. And when that happens, the plane is going to make a number of decisions without asking the pilot because the plane knows what the mission is. And so it has multiple choice automation. It's fairly intelligent. Now, it's the same thing with an autonomous vehicle, by the way. An autonomous vehicle is not a single choice automation, and it is not mechanical automation. An autonomous vehicle has hundreds of choices it has to make on one trip somewhere. Hundreds of choices, if not thousands, just like we do when we drive. I mean, there's how fast should I go? How fast should I go based on the weather? How fast should I go based on traffic? You know, should I slow down knowing that a vehicle or a person in front of us might pull in front of me? How far should I stay from the car in front of me? Has a lot to do with whatever speed the speed limit is. You can see what I'm talking about. You know, there are hundreds of 
other decisions that an autonomous vehicle has to make at any one time. It's a multiple choice automation. Again, this is the intelligence, where the intelligence comes in. Okay, here's what happens in the real world is people work for organizations and they get more and more into the details of the processes or the subsystems. They, they see this process in such a way that they can refine pieces of it. Maybe they don't even understand the whole process that the organization is trying to do. You know, let's just say the organization uh, builds tractors. If you're John Deere and you build tractors, uh, you may be building just a piece of the tractor. You may be building just the electronics on the tractor, right? You might be uh, just putting the tires together. Who knows, right? But you're doing a piece of it. Maybe you can't even see the whole, but you are really, really good at seeing your piece. So if you are somebody that's putting tires on and then checking to make sure that there's a, a no problem with the tires and we're not going to have a warrant issue, right? you're looking in detail at how does the actual tire go on the wheel? How much pressure does it get? Are there any leaks? Are there any uh, weaknesses in the tire walls? Right? There's a lot for you to check on just to make sure that the tire is okay. Uh, and you know, arguably, you might have to have an intelligent system that can watch over all of that. So it's not just a human doing the inspection. That's vastly different than if you're somebody who's building the uh, electronic dashboards, right, or the data gathering system from the tractor. But in every case, whatever part of the tractor you're building, you get down into the details about that part of the tractor, which gives you more and more visibility into being able to automate that one piece. And when you do that, you're able to, in some cases now, start to replace parts of what humans used to do. One of the things about humans that is fantastic is I'll say the word discretion. Humans are able to take in a lot of information and over a lifetime of experience are able to apply discretion to something without just looking at two or three facts and making a decision. We're able to use discretion and I will say what that means is sometimes you'll have the three or four facts, but there's a really outlying condition that might change your decision on something. Uh, and so you would uh, go ahead and, and say, we're not going to do it now. Again, if I talk about the tires on our John Deere tractor, a machine might know how to put the, the rubber tire you know, onto a wheel and do that with precision. But the machine might not understand that the, the heater is out in the factory and that it's 31 degrees in the factory. And that by trying to put the rubber tire on a wheel when the temperature is that low, it's absolutely going to cause warranty problems. A machine may not have that discretion, but a human would have the discretion to say, yes, Yes, we could put the wheels together today, but we're not going to because of some outlying factor the machine was never programmed to understand. Now, I, I'm just saying all this so that, so that you understand. As human beings get more and more into the details of their specific subsystem, they have more of an ability to create automation, to look and to say, hey, that one thing that I did, that one process, you know, that's something that we could automate with a robot, with an AI. And as we have more and more sophisticated tools, the world opens up more and more to, hey, we can apply automation to that thing that used to be really difficult and a human had to make that decision to, you know what, uh, the machine actually could do, use temperature sensors and it could understand that the temperature is too cold or too hot to do with the manufacturing today. It could understand that if it was an intelligent system. And so we have an ability to now refine how many things we can automate in an organization. Again, I step back and I think about the whole organization as like that autonomous car or that F-22 plane, where there are many, many parts and systems, hundreds of them in a lot of cases. And there are hundreds of changing dynamics every day 
just like our airplane in the air. So every organization has people dynamics that are changing, weather dynamics that are changing, economic markets that are changing, uh, regulatory control that is changing. There are all kinds of dynamics that are in flux every day, which means that a lot of the decisions that an organization has to make, they're multiple choice. They're not single choice. And this is the reason why if you say, well, I'm sick of hearing about automation. We've been hearing about it for 100 years. You know, why are we so you know, interested in talking about it today? The reason that we're interested in talking about today is the capacity to have the intelligent automation, the ability to take in many more pieces of data, uh, much more of a dynamic environment and apply automation to it. You know, and as I was mentioning, now that the whole organization really exists in, in a VUCA world, right, a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world, it's more and more important that if we want to automate, the automation's got to be intelligent automation. And as we get into these more detailed subsystems, systems and you ask yourself, well, who's going to be responsible for all these automations in these detailed subsystems? Let me point out, if we're going to wait on IT people to do that, it's going to take way too long. IT people are extremely busy. Also, IT people don't have the knowledge of specific subsystems to even design how automation would be done. Now, if the IT people are partnering with the subject matter experts, right, the people who understand the detailed subsystems, okay, great, then we can get things done faster, all right? But the problem that we have is, again, the IT people would even have to be able to partner. And typically organizations, their IT people are already swamped. So the answer to this is that we really have to build citizen automation specialists. We have to empower the the organization's team members who are non-IT to gain some skills in understanding how intelligent automation can be applied. And if we create 20, 30, 50 citizen automation experts that are in different departments across the organization, then they will have a wonderful ability to understand how to apply intelligent automation at a much faster rate than if we just wait and depend on IT people to just have an empty day or two where they could come to your department and try to figure this all out. So if you understand this dynamic, that we're going to have to create citizen automation specialists if we want to speed up how we automate something, you might be asking yourself right now, but wait a minute, doesn't that mean that the very people who will lose some or all of their jobs are also the best ones to automate? Yeah, that's a fact. That is a fact. Uh, and it is a dynamic we have to deal with in organizations. You know, we have to look at it and say, hey, the people that are in the best situation to understand how to automate a subsystem, a detailed subsystem or process, are the people who do it. And the people who do it will absolutely be automating part or all of their jobs away. Although I will say in most cases, it's part of their job. It's 25% of their job, maybe 50% of their job, not all their job. Now, it is a great question, right? And this is a dynamic that leaders need to understand. If they are tone deaf to this, if they're tone deaf to the fact that they need citizen automation experts, if they're really going to apply intelligent automation, if they're tone deaf to the fact that people in the back of their minds are going to know that they're automating away part of their job. And, and if the leaders are so tone deaf that they don't go out of their way to proactively deal with this, to create a path for team members to want to do intelligent automation, even though it's going to automate part of their jobs away, then again, we're going to have a lot of friction in the system and we're going to use intelligent automation way slower than it, than it could be used. In other words, we're going to allow competitors to be more automated than we are. And at some point, we will feel the consequences of that 
and we'll wish we would have moved faster. So yes, we do need to address displacement, job displacement, work displacement, and the fact that in the best case, we're empowering citizen automation specialists to do it. We're going to automate away parts of their job. And yes, I know in the short term, that sounds terrible. Like, uh, you know, who would want to do it? And how can that possibly be good for the world? But what I want you to understand is, yes, although that might sound terrible in the short term, if you step back from it uh, and, and you look at what the larger picture is, then we need to come to the conclusion that there are better things for the this uh, citizen automation specialist to do, right? Or this team member to do. A- again, I want to remind you that when we automate anything, right, uh, you know, the, there are specific reasons why, like the things that we are hoping to get. For example, the organization wants more efficiency, higher throughput, uh, better quality, better resiliency, you know, in events like pandemics, as we've seen. Uh, Ultimately, they want higher profitability. I mean, these are the things the organization wants. This is why they want citizen automation specialists. But what's in it for me? If I'm that citizen automation specialist, right, and I'm the one that's displacing part of my job or all of my job or some of my friends' jobs, you know, what's in it for me? And when you look a bit longer term, I I hope that people will see that there's a lot to like. When it it is the what's in it for me, you know, you, you start getting into, hey, there are tasks that you had to do before that were somewhat boring, that were highly repeatable tasks. There were tasks that some people had to do that were dangerous. There were some tasks people had to do that were just absolutely overwhelming because there was too much information coming at them to be able to make good and sound decisions. It's better for a machine to try to make that decision. In other words, why would it make any sense to put an F-22 pilot in a plane up in the air and allow them to exceed the, the strength of the wings and so they fly the plane until the wings fall off? I mean, that's kind of a hard consequence to learn, expensive for, for the country and dangerous for the pilot. And, and the pilot isn't going to know the exact tolerance of the plane, even if you do a, a lot of simulation, because that plane that they're flying, it might be different than the simulation in some critical way. It's really important to understand that there is a lot of what's in it for me. You are going to be able to free yourself to accomplish uh, things in life that will be much more fulfilling for you. You'll be able to be more creative and innovative. You'll be able to spend more time probably interacting with humans. Machines are not the best always at interacting with humans and building trust and building relationships. That's a a very good thing humans do. So in other words, whether you automate away 25% of your job, 50 or 100%, there's something better on the other side for you. Yes, you might have to upskill, you might have to reskill, but I think it's really important that leaders understand that people get this message and that if you choose to become a citizen automation specialist and use intelligent automation in your organization, apply it, there's a better future for you. There's something better on the other side of that. And so I hope people see that, that, you know, I'm excited about that. I I will also, you know, if you're not excited about any of that, about just, you know, a better, you know, work career, you know, better things to do all day, then how about higher wages? Because when an organization is more efficient, higher throughput, better quality, better resiliency, and higher profitability, they're going to give some of that money back to their people because they can afford to. So when an organization is barely making a profit, you're not getting a raise. When an organization is highly intelligently automated, it pumps out more profit, you know, more works more efficiency, costs are lower. It has more free cash flow to be able to pay higher wages. So there you go. Maybe that'll 
make you happier. All right. In this world of of paying wages, though, I I need to make a comment about guaranteed minimum income because I feel like I need to do that because so much talk about automation in the last 10 years, there has been um, a a conversation from some people that, well, if we use too many robots in the world, there won't be places for workers. And so we're going to need to do a guaranteed minimum income. In other words, we're going to need to pay everybody $50,000 a year. Uh, That'll be their guaranteed minimum income. And that way, all these companies or organizations that have become high highly profitable. They can be taxed so that the rich just don't get richer. And uh, the owners of these organizations don't just take all this uh, money home and you know spend it on uh, multi-million dollar homes and planes and yachts. This guaranteed minimum income concept, uh, I've thought about it a lot. I've watched uh, when they tested it with 5,000 people up in Canada. I didn't think it would work. I still don't think it would work. I, maybe it's my years of working in the Soviet Union and watching what a socialist system did. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I'm not a bigot where I think that you know, there's nothing good about a socialist system or there's everything good about a capitalist system. I'm much more philosophical than that. I see good and bad in both systems. Specifically, what I'm saying is if we think that we're going to need to solve automation, right, the other side of automation, displacing jobs by using a guaranteed minimum income, we're mistaken. Because in this case, this is not minimum wage, okay? Minimum wage, I understand the concept, right? And I can see why it makes sense, right? So people are not abused. But a guaranteed minimum income, Income? Because if you pay people fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year for doing nothing, there's going to be a chunk of people—not all of them—but a chunk of people who do nothing. And I've heard all the arguments. I've heard the arguments of, uh, well, you know, let's go back and look in the old days. Uh, you know, the old days when we had kingdoms uh, and we had the the ruling party, and it was you know half of all the people in a kingdom, and then we had the serfs. You know, that ruling party, a lot of them didn't quote unquote work. They got a guaranteed minimum income. They were fed. They had places to live. They didn't have to worry about, quote unquote, working like the serfs did. And so those people that got the guaranteed minimum income, they became philosophers, they became artists and scientists, and you know, what a wonderful renaissance it was. So maybe we can compare our days today to that. No, we cannot. And, and let's let's not forget, when you try to do comparisons like that, uh, we did this on the backs of the serfs. There was a whole half of the people who were not getting a guaranteed minimum income at that time. They were the ones slaving away to create the income. So I just want to say, you know, as a personal opinion, when we talk about intelligent automation, this other side of it of, oh, we're going to displace all the jobs. And so we're going to have to have a guaranteed minimum income. That is not the answer. The very positive and optimistic uplifting thing, uh, uplifting thing I'm looking forward to is when you stop making people do work that machines can do, either dangerous work or highly repetitive work or, you know, work that is so complicated, it, you know, it causes people to be overly stressed. When you take that away, right, the work that they do get to do is going to be more fulfilling. But let's just say that you do displace workers out of the organizational system. I think it causes a renaissance in entrepreneurialism, and it allows many people that worked for big organizations to go work for themselves, which is interesting because a lot of what they might do is go back to doing work by hand. And we value work that is done by hand. Hence why Etsy is successful, because people make one-off artistic things by hand. And it's important to understand that in the economy, right? There are two ways to make goods, a highly automated way to make goods, and then a way of making goods by hand. And again, I gave you the restaurant as an example. 
We have McDonald's, Burger King, fast food, right? A lot of it made by machines, right? A, a heavily automated process, and that's inexpensive and it's fast, and there's a place for that. And then there are restaurants that are completely not automated. Everything is done by hand, and they are more expensive in most cases. And so there's a place for all kinds of work. And I just hope people understand that, that we won't need a guaranteed minimum income. We won't. As long as when people's jobs are displaced, they choose to upskill, reskill, or just redefine what they do to actually make money. There will be a place for that. And I think that is a wonderful future. And so I do not see at all that we get into a, a world where intelligent automation replaces humans, the economy gets ruined. You know, I, I, I know I've said it before, I'll keep saying that because I, I really believe as we apply more and more intelligent automation and we move the humology scale over and over, right? We shift to a higher amount of uh, machines doing work than humans. We have more centaur human beings. Uh, yes. Are, are there potential problems with people co-working at higher and higher levels with machines? Of course there is. I speak about the psychological damage of that all the time. Uh, but this is, there's no 100% good or bad in this situation. You really have to look at it and say, with intelligent automation, right, it'll be, you know, 60% good and 40% bad. It'll be more good than bad. And our job is going to be to minimize what the bad outcome is and try to maximize what the positive outcomes are. So again, there there's automation as it concerns organization. In our next episode, we're going to talk about the automated life. So we're just going to talk about automation in our personal lives and what that looks like and where that's going to go and how it's going to change how we live. So I hope you enjoyed these uh, observations about just organizations and intelligent automation. Now we'll switch gears and just talk about life. Thank you. Talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening and giving these ideas a chance. Let this be a two-way conversation and connect with me on Twitter at sklazowski or on LinkedIn. I also write a blog that you can find at scottklazowski.com. An added bonus is a library of thought-leading graphics you can download from the site. One more thing, please take a moment and rate this podcast on whatever platform you use. Ideas are powerful change agents, and positive reviews will help spread the digital optimism.